everyone. So good to be here. What a privilege to share a message with my family, my church community. I love you guys all so much. For those of you who don't know me, I've been in Shofar for some time and a few years now. Since we were way back in the kids' church, it was awesome. And I actually got saved in what is now Amu's office. So um, just been such an incredible journey to be part of this community. And I really just want to thank you guys because you have truly shown that there is strength and power in the unity of community. So welcoming, so supportive. Love you guys. And I think you should just give yourself a, a good clap for as a thank you. Guys, I, <laughs> I also just want to take this time to, to thank um, the families of our pastors. Uh, the other day I was preaching at Otaniqua Primary School and I was presenting my testimony to the kids, the, the PG version. <laughs> and I saw little Eva, it's the oldest daughter of, of Amu, sitting in the crowd and Cornel was sitting on the side. Yes, and as I was... As I was preaching, my heart just broke because I just realized, you know, what they are sacrificing um, to, to actually share their father with hundreds of people in this church so that you and me can, can know Jesus better. It's amazing. And I really want to thank them. And let's just honor them with a clap also. So, guys, if I... Okay, maybe I should start with this. Like, if, you if you haven't had Bible school from me yet, <laughs> my English speaking skills is about as good as my motorcycle driving skills, right? <laughs> Not too great. <laughs> so please, as we go into the sermon, excuse my very sexy Afrikaans accent. <laughs> and enjoy. Okay. We are talking about the second commandment. It is Relationship Month. And what better to talk about than the seven statements of Jesus during the greatest pursuit of relationship this world has ever known. The cross. Huh? Amazing. We can just move on to the next slide. I decided that the title should be The Sermon on the Cross. We're going to take an in-depth look. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're going to take an in-depth look on the words that Jesus has spoken on the cross. But before we get there, we have to, to understand the significance of what it took for him to actually be able to speak on the cross. Now, you guys have heard about the Red Letter Bible, where the words of Jesus is written in, in red in order to emphasize it. Well, what Jesus has done before the cross and on the cross to speak has emphasized these words tremendously. So I'm going to share with you, and I'm sorry if it's going to be a little bit gory and a little bit grim, but I really want you to picture for yourself tonight the way it must have looked moments before the cross and on the cross. I'm challenging you to open up your eyes, to open up your mind, to think about what that meant. Because oftentimes we... We explore the cross, we hear this story a thousand times, right? And uh, we sort of just brush over what is actually happening. And in few logical circles, we have a common term 
that says the work and words of Jesus on the cross. And we focus a lot on the work of Jesus on the cross. But we spend little time thinking about what Jesus said and what he had to do to actually say those words. So let's explore. We, I'm going to give you a 24-hour background to the cross, right? We're starting off in Matthew 26, verse 67. These are now the, the Jewish leaders. They spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. Guys, these are grown men slapping Jesus, punching him with, his, with their fists. If you have a previous life, then you might know that getting punched in the face, it hurts. You don't look the same afterwards, right? John 19, verse 1 to 3. Now, these Jewish leaders took Jesus to Pilate. Then, Pilate sent them to Herod. Herod mocked them, sent them back to Pilate. And this is where we are now. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, right? Scorched is the technical term. Now, we read that, we're like, yeah, he had him whipped a little bit. That's sort of what's going on in our minds, in our context today. The scourge was one of the most horrific and most feared weapons of the day. In Jesus' time, people would rather kill themselves than to submit themselves to a scourge. And some of you might know, but the whip, it was a whip, a scourge was a whip with seven leather strips. And at the end of these strips would be anything from lead balls to sharp bones to shards of pot and clay and um, glass and whatever they could find that would create tremendous damage, right? And the early, uh, early Roman soldier actually wrote about the scourge and he said it's one of the most horrific things that he has ever witnessed. Back in that day, they knew war, right? He saw a lot of bad things. He said, I'm not giving the PG version. He said that at first, two men would stand on either side with the, the prisoner bent over a rock. And simultaneously, they would mercilessly beat this prisoner. And it would start off by first tearing off the skin and then working its way through the muscles, through the flesh, carving through the veins. You would have experienced a tremendous loss of blood. And Jewish tradition said that flogging was a maximum of 40. Like, you were not able to flog someone more than 40 times, otherwise they would die. That was the Jewish tradition. So we often think in church, oh, Jesus was flogged 40 times. That's not true. Who was flogging Jesus? It was Roman soldiers. They didn't care about the Jewish tradition or the Jewish laws. In fact, I think they would have gone out of their way to do it more. So we know that at least Jesus was flogged 40 times, but possibly a lot more. And this Roman soldier also said that they would stop once they see the bone. They would tear off, completely beat off the back of this prisoner of Jesus, to the bone. It's intense, guys. We read over these things and we don't really realize what's happening. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on. In the Greek, it's like with force. 
placed it on with force, pressing it into the skull and the skin of Jesus. They, a cohort, is a 10% of a legion, so 600 soldiers, clothed them in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So they would continuously mock him. 600 men. And they slapped him in the face. Slapped him in the face. Now, let's say a hundred of these Roman soldiers, hardened, battle-hardened, tough, huge, strong guys. At least a hundred of that 600 must have slapped Jesus. Can you imagine the damage that that would have done to our king? It's terrible. You read there in Mark 15, verse 20 to 23. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. It's a place where they often did executions. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. And he did not take it. Now, that myrrh is like a plant that they would mix with mine in order to create like a painkiller medicine, right? That's highly significant. That last, just go back again, that last verse or sentence. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Remember that as we move on, okay? So, this is before the cross, right? Isaiah said this. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. This is a, a prophecy of Jesus. This is what he would have looked like. Not unrecognizable as Jesus, unrecognizable as a human being. That is the state that he is in, even before the cross. Before the cross. Right? Now, on the cross, the science. I probably cried five times while preparing this sermon. It was truly terrifying. It was the saddest thing I've, I've ever done, probably, to prepare for, you know. The cross today, guys, we see the cross everywhere. We see it on jewelry. We see it on earrings. We see it in our churches. We see it um, even in the houses of atheists. You see a cross. It's so common. And it's become a symbol of love, of light, of freedom, of hope, right? And we thank God that he took that original symbol of death, humiliation, torment, suffering, pain. And he turned it into this beautiful symbol we have today. We thank God for that. But we must be careful that we don't become numb to the original meaning of the cross and what it would have meant to the disciples back in the day. When Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, I can't imagine what they must have thought. Because they were seeing people crucified on a regular basis, right? Crucifixion was not just for Jesus. It wasn't this special sort of death that the Romans created for Jesus. It was wildly common. At one stage, I think Rome, the most they crucified in one day was 6,000 people. They would crucify people from one town to the next, crucify them all the way on the road. 
anyone who would come into opposition to the Roman Empire would be subject to crucifixion. So they truly perfected the cross as a device of torture and death. Torture until death. Now guys, we're almost done with the, the grim bits, but what would have happened at this cross in chronological order is they would have laid Jesus on this cross, they would nail him through the hands or the wrists, they would hoist him up with ropes into a hole, and immediately, once he becomes vertical, he would drop. And his, both of his shoulders were dislocated. Immediately. Then they would go and they would nail his feet to the cross, and it was impossible for him to take a breath in that hanging position, which means that he would have to torture himself with this torn to the bone back. He would have had to grit that up as he presses up to take a breath, to speak these words that I'm telling you today, that we're going to discuss today. Do you understand what he had to go through to say these things? You guys with me? I'm sorry for the gory stuff, but... I just want us to understand what is happening here, what he's going through with each time he's saying something. We're going to go straight to the first statement that Jesus made. First statement is a statement of forgiveness. Luke 23 verse 34, and Jesus said, remember, with a tortured breath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. these people just put him in this place they were mocking him they were slapping him, beating him around just put him on this cross and the first thing he did was torture himself torture himself to ask for their forgiveness how great is our God what Jesus modeled here is the importance of forgiveness. He did not just forgive. You know, sorry, today in church, I really respect the grace period to give people to forgive one another. But that is not what Jesus modeled. Jesus modeled immediate release, immediate forgiveness. He showed that whatever you have to do, forgive that person. Even if you have to torture yourself, forgive that person. That is the importance of forgiveness. So I want you guys to really go home today and just go check. Is there someone that I need to forgive? And then relentlessly pursue whatever you have to to forgive that person. But this was not just for the importance of forgiveness. It was a declaration of forgiveness for everyone who has put Jesus on that cross. It was not just Pilate and the Jews and the Roman soldiers who put Jesus on that cross. It was you and me. Our sin, right? We are responsible. You heard what I just said? What Jesus had to go through? We are responsible for that. Our sin has put him in that position. Our sin has put him on that cross. And today you can know. Today you can know that the first thing he did was torture himself to forgive you. That's how much he loves you. To set you free. He also declared just that forgiveness is possible now. 
through the work on the cross. The second statement is a statement of salvation. And just a little bit of background. I'm not going to assume you guys know what's going on. But there were two men crucified next to Jesus. Now the first guy, Luke 23 verse 39, he said, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at them. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. God, aren't you Jehovah Jireh? Where's my financial provision? Where's my financial breakthrough? Aren't you Jehovah Rapha? Where's my healing? Huh? Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. We must be very careful, guys, not to become entitled to what God can offer us, but to, as James said earlier, acknowledge God in the position that is His. Not for our benefit, for our selfish gain, but because that is what He deserves. He is the healer. Whether He heals you or not, no matter your circumstances, no matter if your business sinks, He is a provider. Luke 23, verse 41 to 42. And now the one criminal, remember these guys also have to torture themselves to take a breath, right? This guy's pulling himself up to address the other criminal. He's saying, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He's saying that this cross fits my sin. That is what we all deserve. You had a cross with your name on it. And Jesus died on that cross. It's what we all deserve. Right? He's coming to, um, he's saying with a repented heart, acknowledgement of his sin, he's saying, but this man has done nothing wrong. Done nothing wrong. He's acknowledging that Jesus is sinless, without guilt, without wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied with the second statement. Luke 23 verse 43. And he said to him, one of the most beautiful verses I've ever read. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now guys, would it not have been much easier just to say, today you'll be in heaven. Today will be in paradise. He had to take an extra breath. And you know what that meant, right? Unimaginable suffering. To say, with me. To make it personal. To say, hey, that is the goal. That is salvation. Salvation is not heaven. Salvation is not eternity or eternal life. That's not salvation. That's not our goal as Christians. Our goal as Christians is to be in relationship with God, in relationship with God. That is salvation, being with Christ. That is why you are saved today if you are with Christ, because you're in relationship with Jesus. John 17, verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, know you personally, not what other people have said about you, not what you think, but know you, walk with you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Getting to the third statement. <coughs> Anas. <laughs> Anki. Okay. 
The third statement is a statement of responsibility and family. John 19, verse 26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, remember, pulling himself up, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What Jesus is doing here is, he's giving over responsibility as provider and protector of his disciple and his mother to one another. In the midst of unthinkable pain, Jesus is taking care of his family. He's taking care of his family. And I specifically want to speak to the men now, right? This is something that I'm preaching on a lot this year, is, is men. And the things they struggle with, this world, how it's set up to destroy men. I want to tell you today as a man, my friend, you are the trophy to the enemy. You are the biggest target he has. He smag na jou. He soek jou met alles in jou. Right? Look at there, Aubrey, but he's you, man. You are the, the muscle cracker in fishing. The kudu with the 47-inch horns. You are the trophy for the enemy because he knows if he breaks you, James, he breaks your wife. He breaks your kids. He breaks your business, your workers. He breaks the world around you. You are the first line of defense. And I'm telling you one thing right now. The answer is not to get more money. The answer is not to move to a safer neighborhood. The answer is to live in the center of God's will. That is the safest place for you to be. And sometimes it's going to look a little bit upside down. It's not going to make sense. Sometimes it's going to mean walking into Tembaletu as Sabrina does. Without fear. Alone. I went with her and one day I asked, yeah, aren't you afraid? She said, no. I'm in the will of God. I'm covered by God. Safest place to be. No matter what's happening next, whether she lives or dies, she's in God's will. Safest place to be. And um, I want you to understand that you are a target because you are a threat to the, to the enemy. Right? You can make, you can cause some serious damage to the kingdom of the enemy as a man. And from this position, you know, you have been given a responsibility to take care of your family also as a man. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, it says, if you do not provide, you are worse than an unbeliever. You are worse than an unbeliever. If you do not provide for your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. Who yeah, just thought about finances right now? Right. Not going not gonna to put you on the spot. But that's where we tend to go. Provision is more than finances, guys. It's spiritual. It's physical. It's emotional. It's physical. Give that kid a hug, man. Come on. Lead your wife. Don't be that guy whose wife has to track him to church. Don't be that guy whose wife has to say, Ach, just let us just read this one chapter in the Bible. I know I'm speaking to you guys here. I know there's people here. Okay? Take responsibility for the spiritual life of yourself and also your family. Take responsibility of the emotional life of your family. 
provide. Okay, let's go into the fourth statement. Right, now guys, we go, we're going to go a little bit into the Bible. It's going to be a little bit more theological. So I'm, I put this one in for Tani Andriette there at the back. <laughs> Test me, Tani, eh? Test me. Okay, the fourth statement, sin and righteousness. Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Oh, mensen. And as a young believer, I struggled with this tremendously. Because it doesn't make sense. Did Jesus lose faith at the end? I don't think so. Why did he ask why? He already knew the answer. Why would he ask why? Right? Why did he have to waste, not waste, but use a very, very terribly gained breath to speak these words out loud? If he was speaking to God, he could have just done it in his head, right? He didn't need to torture himself to take the breath to say it out loud. And yeah, I was struggling with this, and I prayed to God, and I said, please just help me figure out what's going on, because this does not seem like my Jesus. Luke 22, okay. So, I prayed that, and I had a dream. I had a dream. To this day, the worst fear I felt in my life. I was going downstairs, as I normally do in the middle of the night, <laughs> to get a snack from the fridge. <laughs> And, <laughs> and in front of the fridge was a demon. He was blocking me. And I'm like, not a good place to be, my friend. But no, no, no I'm, I'm still, I was about, I was safe for like a month or two. I'm, I'm scared and I'm calling out to God and I'm like, yes, God, please help me. There's a demon. And in my dream, God did not exist. He wasn't there. I had no connection. I had no relationship with him. He was gone. I was separated, abandoned. And I woke up in a pool of sweat, shivering, guys. Like, I think I was, what, like 21 years old. I was scared like a five-year-old boy. I was shaking. Not because I had to face the demon by myself, but because I was out of relationship with God. I was abandoned. God did not exist. That did not exist. And I read Luke 22 verse 44 and this is where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, right? And he's, um, he's now praying to God. He's saying, please take this cup from me. But yet not my will be done, but your will be done. Showing us the importance of making every sacrifice to remain in the will of God. Then he said this, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And I researched that, and it turns out it's a condition where when you experience heavy fear and stress, your sweat turns into blood, right? It's like a legit medical condition. And I'm like, now I'm even more confused. Because my Jesus doesn't fear. He's the guy saying, shut up to the storm. And then tuning the disciples because they are fearful. How can he now be in this position? And I'm 
thinking, you know, maybe it's because he was going to die and stuff. And then I realized, but there's many times Jesus was ministering that people wanted to stone him. People wanted to throw him off a cliff and he would just sidestep like Colby and move on to the next city. Continue ministering, right? So he can't be dead. He can't be afraid of dying. It makes no sense. Maybe it's that he was scared of suffering. I mean, we, we did hear about what's coming, right? And I think, nah, it doesn't make sense, huh? It doesn't make sense. Because we suffered in the wilderness. We, we never heard anything about fear. He suffered so bad that angels had to come and take care of him. We never heard anything about fear. Jesus was not a fearful man of the things of this world. And then I read Galatians 3 verse 13. And now you guys need to just stick with me a little bit. It says, being made a curse for us. Being made a curse for us. On the cross, our sin was taken on Jesus. And God had to see your sin on Jesus in order to see the righteousness of Jesus on you. He had to see the sin of the world on Jesus in order to see Jesus' righteousness on the world. But the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on this cross. And for a moment, what does sin do? It separates you from God. The worst fear Jesus ever had was even just for a moment. Not because of who he is and what he's done, but because of what we've done. Be out of connection with God. So that we can be in relationship with God. Most beautiful thing ever, guys. Now, that explains sort of why he's making that statement of being forsaken. But it does not explain why I had to do it out loud. Let's go to the next slide. He's referencing also Psalm 22. And now things are getting real, guys. Psalm 22. Something written more than a thousand years before the crucifixion. And it's a crucifixion prophecy written by the psalmist. It says there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. He's saying you are worthy of trust beyond circumstances. Right? You, in, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and in the Greek it's a very specific worm that they would dry out and use its blood to, to dye things, to cover things. Interesting that Jesus is making that connection with him dying now and his blood covering us. Okay, Scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. Exactly what happened. They all insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. The prophecy continues. I encourage you to read the entire Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, 
and my bones. So he would have been extremely dehydrated for obvious reasons at this stage. And all my bones are out of joint. Exactly what would have happened at the cross, right? This is more than a thousand years before the crucifixion. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. Not these people. You, my Father. God gave Jesus for us, right? Dogs around me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now that's interesting. Because this psalmist wouldn't have had a notion of what the crucifixion is. There wasn't crucifixion in his time. So what did he write about here? Right? God laying the words in his mouth for us to enjoy even till today. All my bones are on display. Exactly what would have been with his back. Torn to the bone. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Exactly what happened. Psalm 22, 27 to, to 31. Now this is what Jesus is saying is coming, right? Victory and kingdom expansion. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. Yet unborn. He has done it. He has done it. And that is what the Sri Lanka team is going to do. That is what the Moza missionaries has done. That is what our local missionaries do. Many of, of them haven't even read Psalm 22. But Jesus declared it at the cross. He referenced it and he said, they will proclaim his righteousness to those who are not reborn. He has done it, guys. He has done it. Fifth statement. It's about the kingdom. John 19, verse 28. Before I get there, I want to encourage you guys to to really go study up on the kingdom. It is one of the most important topics for us to understand as Christians. And not to condemn you, but if I were to ask many of you yet tonight what the kingdom of God is, very few of you would be able to, to answer me. It is our priority as Christians to seek the kingdom. But many of us don't know what the kingdom is. You're looking for something you don't, you don't know what you're looking for. John 19, verse 28, Jesus pulls himself up, tortures himself to say this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I first, I first, right? Now, remember in the beginning when I said, remember this verse, right? They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he declined. Yeah? And many theologians say, no, it's because he didn't, he wanted to feel the pain. He had to feel the pain for, for us, right? That's not true. He just had to die with our sin. Okay? That's all to it. But he declined because of Matthew 26, verse 29. I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in this, the sixth statement, let's continue. John 19 verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, it is a fruit of the vine. He said, it is finished. And by drinking, by taking that sip, Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of God has been established here on the earth spiritually. It is here now. It is available for you. And Todd White, I don't agree with everything Todd White says, but this is a good statement. He says, Jesus didn't just die to get you into heaven. He died to get heaven into you. Right? The kingdom of God, the sovereignty, the ultimate sovereign rule and reign of, um, of the... <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate sovereign rule and reign of God in the realm of the heaven and the earth can live inside of you. That is the kingdom of God, right? Jesus established that. He says, it is finished. It is finished. But he's also talking about reconciliation. He's talking about reconciliation. This kingdom of God this sovereign rule and reign of God can work through us. It can work in us. It can work for our, our good. Right? And I see many Christians, young Christians, with strife. And I was, I was also like that. Sometimes I'm still like that. You know, we, I've been sinning so much that I, I really can't sin no more. I, I, I just need to, to get a grip of my life. You are not called, right, to take responsibility of your sanctification. That is God's job. You are called to take responsibility of your relationship with Jesus. If you walk with Jesus, the sanctification process will go on. Don't strive. Don't do it in your own power. You failed the first time. You're not going to make it the second time. So, it is finished, guys. It is finished. How great is that? It's been done. The gap has been closed. Relationship is possible. Right? Don't strive. Lekker. The sixth statement. The final statement of Jesus. Spirit surrender. Luke 23 verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Once again, Jesus is referencing a prayer in the Psalms. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. Torturing himself to say this out loud. Showing us that he dies in prayer. Let's go to the next slide. He died in prayer. He died in prayer. That is how our lives should look like. Live and die in relationship and connection with God. Right? Constantly seeking that relationship. But Jesus also saying, I commit my spirit into your hands. Just once again declared that our existence is not just physical. It is also spiritual. And death is not the end for us. It is the entry into eternity. Right? It is the beginning of a life, of an eternal life with Christ. How exciting is that, guys? How exciting is that? And 
you know, I was faced with this about a week ago. This lady, she asked me, she said, she knew this woman, this woman loved Christ, and they were praying for her, she had a sickness, and they were praying for her, but, you know, she was such a good daughter of Christ, and kept on praying for her healing, and then she died. And then she died. And how can that be? How can God be good if someone who loves Him so much, you know, He allows that person to die? doesn't make sense. We are all dying. We are all dying, right? Death is not the end. It is the ultimate healing for those who are Christians. It's the ultimate healing. They prayed for you. And she received you. Ultimately. She will never know sickness or unhappiness again. Beautiful.